You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Renoy, and this is the podcast for therapists about the things that happen in our practices, the ways that we work with our clients. And this is an episode about dealing with crisis of the week. Crisis of the week. So this was brought up in one of our Patreon coffee hours by one of our patron members. And we are so excited to actually be engaging with our little modern therapist community in a lot of ways and taking some of the things that we discuss when we run into people and being able to say, you know, here's our perspectives and maybe sharing this with all of our listeners. So wherever you're at in your career, you've probably ended up running into those sessions with clients where it just seems to be like, you know, we set an idea of what we're supposed to be working on, but every week and it comes in and there's just not that. And so (laughs) Katie and I wanted to talk about just kind of historically how crisis of the week has been talked about in our fields, the way that that has not necessarily benefited a lot of the discussions and maybe leave you with some practical ways of identifying and being able to deal with this when it comes up in your work with clients. So, Katie, I know in our little pre-recording that we did for preparation for our Patreon members, I talked a little bit about my experience. I'll share that here in just a moment. But how is Crisis of the Week kind of brought up to you in the early stages of your career? I think it was when I was... In community mental health, for sure, that the idea of crisis of the week was paired in some ways with the doorknob confession. And so oftentimes folks would come in with all-consuming situational issues. They got an eviction notice. They were running out of money at the end of the month. They were having actual kind of survival issues And so we would talk about those things week after week after week, or it would be my kid acted up in this way or that way. And every week, same thing, same thing. And it, it felt like it was, we were processing it, but not getting to any resolution. And it was the same conversation almost every week. And then every once in a while, they would say something inflammatory, like, oh, I forgot. I was going to talk to you about X as their doorknob confession. And X, of course, was way more interesting and way more aligned with the treatment goals. And so to me, I think with with crisis of the week, I started to recognize that there were different reasons for it and and shift those things, which we'll get into. But I think it felt like, especially when I was very early in my career, these were such important things. They were There was so much emotion behind them. How could I stop this processing and later this venting to to jump into this other stuff. And I, I felt like it was it was hard to make the shift to actually get to something that was effective for some of my clients. I think a lot of my clients, we were able to do it, but like some of my clients were just so dysregulated, so overwhelmed, so consumed by, you know, situations in their life that it was hard to actually get to what we might call as good therapy. Mine was brought up earlier 
by one of my professors. I think it was my first. It might have been my second semester of grad school. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's that's super early. <laughs> so not even practical. <laughs> not even practical, but it was done as a sign. And I don't remember the exact words that she used, but I can picture pretty much the class because this got referenced both sarcastically, but also kind of at face value by some of my classmates throughout grad school. But that if you're facing a client who's always dealing with a crisis of the week, you need to consider if you're working with somebody with borderline personality disorder. Mm. And in retrospect, I'm like, that was pretty terrible advice to give to grad students because not really yeah, understanding bad. all of the nuances of what this means. Your description here sounds pretty like thoughtful and respectful <laughs> and comparison to the way that it was suggested to us. But really in identifying what a crisis of the week is, it's just kind of those things that come up that seem to interfere with treatment and not necessarily in the same way of therapy interfering behaviors. We've discussed that in the past. It could be one of those things from the world of DBT. But those things that seem to be all-encompassing in a client's life that detract from the overall therapeutic goals. Now, in your experience and in your practice, how do you identify what's just kind of what's important in the week and that's kind of what ends up coming up versus this is a crisis of the week situation that's just totally detracting from therapy? When the conversation is really repetitive, there's not progress made in that conversation and the client's experience of it and the way they manage these crises are unchanged by having talked with me about it. Regardless if it's quote-unquote crisis of the week, it's clear that it's not, that, that we're not affecting change. Like there's not something that's happening effectively in therapy to be able to improve their capacity to weather whatever their crises are each week. And so to me, whether it's a quote unquote crisis of the week, you know, which when I'm thinking about the, the kind of, it's a borderline, it's therapy interfering behaviors, those kinds of things that really suggest that it's a, some sort of issue with the client <laughs> versus it's an issue with the therapy. And so to me, like I, I, I'm getting caught with that right now. And so I'm trying to put all the, these thoughts together. But if it's something where there's not progress being made, I need to address the therapy versus this is a client that just has a lot of stuff going on and we need to find a different way to get to what we're actually supposed to be working on. I don't know if I explained that well, so maybe maybe you can jump in and help me get back on track with this. Yeah, I find that when treatment doesn't seem to be addressing what we agreed to work on. In other words, if... I'm working with somebody and their family around preparing them to work through former trauma sort of stuff. But everything that keeps being brought up in session is about, you know, current behavioral stuff. I work with a lot of families, a lot of teens, that kind of stuff. So if I'm having a family that comes in like, hey, we want our teen working on, you know, this trauma stuff that is the cause of all of these behaviors, but we're going to dominate every session with here's how our teen is acting up this week, then I'm going to point out, hey, we agreed that we're going to work on something, but it seems like all of our time is being spent talking about something completely different. And 
this can happen for a number of reasons. You identified some in your practice, but what this really seems to come down to is a lot of times making sure that everybody is on the same page as far as what the treatment plan actually is. And a lot of times this comes down to how well are we as therapists managing sessions, managing and setting expectations for what therapy is supposed to be, what we're actually able to accomplish in therapy, rather than just talking about, here's the things this week that brought up big emotions for me. And that's, I, I think, a lot of times where it's very easy to get trapped into the content of what clients are talking about. And as we're both kind of pointing out here, one of the ways of managing it is getting back to talking about the therapy. And here's kind of that pitch for one of the best ways to talk about the therapy is have your clients fill out session rating scales and be able to (laughs) more easily structure, hey, are we talking about what we actually want to talk about and work on our goals so that way we can identify this stuff even earlier? Sure. I mean, I really hate ORS and SRS. Like as a client, I just hated it. And my therapist finally stopped doing it. But I think there's that element of... But but did you do ORSs about ORSs? No, it did not. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the concept is good of being able to talk about the therapy. And I think a lot of folks, especially when the content is really highly emotionally charged, I think have trouble shifting gears to, hey, are we working on what you want to work on? Because there is... What are the agreed upon treatment goals? But then there's also like, are those the right treatment goals? If this is what you're bringing every week, do we need to shift the treatment goals? So I I think it's not just always like go back to the treatment goals that maybe let's reassess if this is the right treatment goal or what the right stage in the treatment goal. Because when you're saying, I want to work on helping my kid to do X, Y, and Z, and they come in and talk about what their kid's doing, I don't see that as arguably something that they may know is not part of what the treatment is. Right. And so it's really providing a lot more structure on how do we talk about these things? Most people, most clients know how to vent because they vent to their friends. But actively getting into therapy and doing the things that help, that's where we come in. And I think this is why talking about it as client based issues is really, really limited. Right. Right. And so it really is the onus of the therapist to really set the stage for what is therapy, how are we going to be in therapy, and and how do we determine what the goals are, how do we work together collaboratively to make sure that we're working on those goals, and how do we assess that those, those goals are the right goals. But to me, it's it's hard when you're a clinician and someone is really activated and emotional and and having those moments to say, wait, is this what we really wanted to talk about? <laughs> But I think it's important that we do that. I think you do all your therapist skills. You get to a place of bringing the session into a a space that you can actually talk about the therapy, helping the client to self-soothe, you know, addressing whatever they're talking about to the point that they can move on with. So you don't feel like you're completely disregarding them or not allowing them to speak their truth or whatever that is. You know, you don't want to dismiss this as like, well, you need to stop talking about the thing that's most present on your mind because I think a lot of people would feel invalidated by that. But it's once you're able to get to that place where you can actually talk about it, I think the conversation is how do we help this to be less distressing to you or how do we? 
how do we help to avoid these crises or how do we move into a place that we're actually working on what you came to therapy for? Yeah, it's doing good therapy. And even by doing that, what you're describing is going back to what the treatment goals are. It's sure. And making sure that everybody's on the same page, because in managing that, it doesn't necessarily mean that, hey, we need to go back to the treatment goals that we agreed upon a month ago. It's as you're describing, it's are the treatment goals, have they changed to Mm -hmm. here's what we're able to actually accomplish here. I'm not able to go and take that eviction notice off of the door for you. I'm able to talk about being able to get you to a space of not coming from a place of emotional reactivity to that. So that way you're better able to be stabilized through the process of managing being evicted or whatever else it is. So what you're describing is still going back to what the treatment plan goals are. And for the more insight-oriented aspects of treatment, it's also being able to get into what's making us susceptible to having that be the focus of the sessions, even when we've agreed that what we're supposed to work on is something else. Now, most of the time, I see this as these are clinician factors that end up allowing for this to happen. And that can be anything from not really recognizing it, not really having the confidence to be able to talk with clients, especially early career kind of mistakes, but just being able to say, you know, hey, this seems important to you. And it's outside of what we had already talked about, that there's a space to really supportively just talk about the therapy. Because how many times have either you run into this with clients in your career or had people consult with you and supervision, this comes up with me, that all of a sudden clients are upset a couple of months into treatment. Like, you're not even a helpful therapist because <laughs> we've never even reached our goals. We've never even talked about what we set yeah. out to do. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I think oftentimes it's something where taking the client's lead feels very appropriate. And I think sometimes we actually are mistaking a client wandering in the wilderness with them taking the lead. I think there's there's an element of this where we really have to take responsibility for for the shape of the session. And maybe it's not a full agenda, but I think it's it's even for some clients switching from how are you doing today or how'd the week go to what's most helpful to talk about today. And even if you are a non-directive therapist, you're still expected to have some sort of treatment plan in place that your client knows about. You're supposed to revisit it every so often. So that way, this kind of stuff doesn't end up happening. And much like my professor in grad school can end up leading us into a space where our laziness, our lack of ability to be able to structure therapy, even in unstructured theories, ends up being something that labels people with very potentially damaging diagnostics that can follow them throughout their lives when really what they're doing is reacting to your piss poor management of therapy. <laughs> well, I think there's there's other elements of 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 this that I think are important. I think 
yes, therapists need to manage their sessions. And I think that there's an element of this that could be laziness or overwhelm or burnout or all of the pieces where you're not actively engaging your client in a way that that allows for moving past whatever the crisis of the week is into the real parts of the session. I think that there are there are client factors, though. I, I don't know that it's borderline. I never had heard that. That's so weird. It just feels very, very judgmental and, and negative. And I get that. Any, it seems like at, at some point, anything that therapy clients did that was hard to deal with, you know, if they're too defensive, if you feel like they're pushing you and pulling away or whatever it is, like any of these things like, oh, well, they must be borderline. So I think we've made that point, but it just, it's still, it oh, still she, frustrates she, me. That, that oh, oh, she she doubled down. You know, oh, no, it, no. it was, these are the kinds of clients that always seem to have car trouble. <laughs> oh my gosh. So... Okay, so so I think we have a whole other conversation. I'm beginning to think that my entire graduate education was just like some sort of experimental, like we were in the control group of some greater scheme of things. Of how well do people actually turn out with just a bunch of not great education? I, I think you were being punked, honestly. <laughs> So I think we actually have another conversation that we need to record about uh, personality disorders, whether or not borderline or narcissism or any of that stuff uh, is as helpful as people seem to think it is. But let's talk about the client factors that therapists need to be aware of, because it's still a, a therapist factor, but it's a client factor that therapists need to manage. And so I talked briefly about the doorknob confessions. I think this is where the the client is talking about anything and everything to not talk about the real topic. And I've definitely had these clients where they just are terrified to talk about the real thing. And so they have something else that's that's the the decoy, the decoy issue. And I think therapists need to figure that out. And the way that I do that is so this is really interesting. What are we not talking about? <laughs> well, and this can be something where, and again, within the the broader borderline personality disorder topic that we'll come out with an episode on that fairly soon, but it's something that could be a sign of trauma. Of Oh, absolutely. Not really either having the skills or the desire to actually talk about the the causes of a lot of these feelings. And so it's from a client's perspective, it's easier, it's it's dare I say safer to talk about whatever is happening during the week rather than some of the root causes of this kind of stuff. And I think that there's a fair amount of historical literature that does talk about this from a trauma perspective as well. And you know, depending on how far you go back, some of it does loop back into just blaming it on, quote unquote, the borderline. But this is <laughs> something that is, as you're describing, something that can be managed by what is it that we're not talking about? You know, it seems like whenever we get close to this, this is when the conversation ends up shifting to something else. And once again, the answer is talking about what's happening in the therapy room and being present to what is happening in the here and now. And I think it's also this, this element of 
really trusting in the relationship and the and the depth of the relationship to be able to have those conversations, right? I mean, it's it's something where maybe session two or three, we can have that conversation, but I feel like I'm still getting to know the client. They're still getting to know me. I mean, some of these interventions are, are session eight, session 10, you know, that where you're really digging deeply into, I know you and there's something else going on here. Because <laughs> I think we can't assume with someone we first met that the the reason that they're talking about something on a surface level is because they're avoiding talking about something else. I think it's it's something where it's a responsibility of the therapist to really get to know the client and their patterns so that we can cut them off at the pass. You know, when I usually bring this up with clients, it's a, a few sessions in, maybe before I know somebody in that, you know, two to three months sort of range. But part of what setting the expectations for therapy from the very beginning is, is about what it's like to work with you as the therapist. And sometimes by eight or 10 sessions in, there's the implicit agreement that's been established as part of the therapeutic alliance that might not make that as effective as bringing it up earlier. You know, you well, can, you can still explore it, it as a relational issue. It's later. I think bringing it up as a structural issue is at the beginning. That was the distinction I was trying to make. Sure. And I think that that's why it's important to bring it up earlier with curiosity, not as kind of an assignment of this is why it's happening. And I think that that's the way of managing it is, hey, I noticed this when, not here's why this is happening. I think that that why piece is what you're talking about. The interpretive piece of this is once you've gotten to know somebody earlier, but Sometimes just being able to explore it from a curious sort of standpoint allows us to bring in actually some of the client factors that may do this. It might be, oh, I need more skills to be able to talk about that. And that can then adjust what your treatment plan is as far as being able to work on distress tolerance or any of those kinds of things. It might be something where there's cultural factors, where Talking indirectly about something ends up being the way to bring up more difficult things at first. It might be a language barrier sort of thing if there's cross-cultural differences between therapist and client. It might just be a very literal sort of aspect. Well, you asked me what happened this week, and that's why I'm talking about Vanderpump rules. And... (laughs) But I think there's there's that other element with the the literal or you are the the expert, so I'm following your directions that I think speaks to the structural bringing this up. How I'm trying to distinguish this is at the very beginning, it's it's really saying this is what therapy is and this is how we're going to run the sessions versus trying to assign client you know, or even necessarily explore the client factors before, you know, how they're going to respond to the structure that's been set in place. And that structural sort of discussion allows for the two of you to be able to plan for, all right, when this happens, when we notice this happening, is this something that we want to be able to address directly every single time that it comes up? Or is this something that just in noticing this, this is how we identify, all right, you're going to a soothing type of conversation or a soothing type of behavior because that's what you need in that particular moment. But 
being able to identify it with the client and with the client's permission of what to do with it ends up being kind of our responsiveness. Some of that's going to be guided by theory and the agency that you work in and all of that kind of stuff. But the big important piece of this is how do we want to address it when it's coming up so that way we know what we're doing? Yes, and <laughs> I think with the the caveat that not everyone's going to have this issue, some folks are going to be very laser focused on whatever the treatment goals are. And some folks may only mildly do this crisis of the week. And I think directly addressing it, having the deeper conversations is really valuable work. I think there's also a mechanism in place for transitioning into whatever the clinical content is. So how are you doing this week? What's going on? Crisis, crisis, crisis. Resolve a little bit, tie it back to the treatment goal, work on the treatment goal. Like I don't think it needs to be something hugely relational every single time. It can be, this is how we look for the fodder, uh, the clinical fodder. Because I, I mean, I think that's with a lot of my clients, it's how'd the week go? And they talk with me about it for a few minutes, five minutes maybe. And then we go into the dynamics, the the patterns, the things, and and use that as fodder for the, the treatment goals. What you're talking about is conversation about the week, not crisis of the week type things, at least as far as I'm hearing what you're describing. I think the distinction is, is that I feel like some of those conversations could turn into crisis of the week if I treated them as the, the clinical material versus the opening gambit. <laughs> I don't dig too deeply into them. I let them kind of run through what they're, what they're bringing to session versus processing it and going deeper into and how did that make you feel and what's going on? Like I really, at the very beginning, don't, don't get into the, the fray there. And I wait because when I used to get into the fray, that's all we would talk about. Can you give me an example of how that five minute mark ends up changing? Is it something that you're saying? Is it something that the client's saying? At five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is, I do a short summary and I say, okay, which of these things would be most helpful for us to talk about? Or I'm noticing this, and this is one of the things that we wanted to work on is what do you think about talking about that today? So even some of the structural pieces of this is how do you end up starting sessions? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the point I'm making. Thank you. That's where I was trying to get to. <laughs> I mean, and maybe this is a, a much bigger and deeper conversation in and of itself, but there's even a difference between, hey, we left off last session with this. Is that where you want to dive in? Versus yep. kind of that more relational, like, hey, what's going on with you this week or any of those kinds of things that ends up being something that you structure as the therapist yourself that can also help to set this up in a way that makes it to where you're less likely to fall into this kind of a trap. Yeah, I think there's some clients where we're working on specific things that, yes, we were talking about this at the end of last week. Is that where you want to start today? I think there are a lot of clients, especially in longer term attachment-based work, where it's kind of what's going on. And I have to make sure I don't get into the content and spend 15, 20 minutes getting caught up on 
who they're dating, what's going on, what did so and so say? <laughs> like, did you get that promotion? Like, I can, I think it can. Some of those things can be very powerful and enriching, and some of them are just me being curious <laughs> and wanting to know what's going on with my client. So, and that's not crisis of the day necessarily, but I think that there's that element of being able within the relationship to determine how do you switch gears into the work versus the connection and the the touch base, the the initial kind of check-in, so to speak. If you do a check-in, which I guess is more to the point of everybody kind of does these things differently. So maybe kind of looking at this in a way that has some takeaways and some calls to action is number one, look at the ways that this is showing up in session. Some of this is going to be dependent on where you're at in treatment, early stages versus middle stages and that kind of stuff. Two is how do you bring this up with clients? And if this is really something where there's kind of a disagreement or lack of agreement on what you're actually able to do in treatment together, is the idea of what therapy is the same on both sides of the therapy room? Yes. Yeah. And then it's how do you bring this up once you've identified that it's happened? And really, what I'm hearing is most of the time it's just coming back to do we need to adjust what our treatment plan is? Or even, I mean, I think jumping all the way, do we need to adjust our treatment plan? I think is, is that's like step four or five. I think the first one is, is this what you're wanting to talk about today? Is this what you're wanting to work on today? I think when you identify the problem, maybe it's been a couple of sessions and it's not necessarily like, let's have this gigantic conversation about therapy. It could be, can I do an intervention in the moment to switch how we're working? And then you jump to, do we need to change how we're working? Do we need to address our treatment goals, you know, and make them different because you keep bringing this stuff up? You know, I think it's, I think it's, it's staged. I don't, you know, or stages. I don't think it's one particular, like, okay, now we have to discuss the whole relationship because the last three weeks you've talked about the same crisis over and over again. We would love to hear from all of you on how you see Crisis of the Week developing, what you do to manage it. You can do that by commenting on our social media and following us on those platforms, as well as joining our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group, to continue having this conversation. And please consider becoming a patron member or supporting us through Buy Me a Coffee. And as you can see, we make content out of the conversations that we interact with our patrons. And you can actually ask these questions and have in-depth conversations on your particular situation. Yes. And you can find our website over at mtsgpodcast.com. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.